Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 99th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows that snowflakes can't form snowballs unless they're close enough to touch. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic, singles, and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MGG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James, and good evening, loyal listeners. I can only assume you're loyal at this point. Glad to be here and looking forward to our 99th episode. Uh, only one more till we hit 100 next week, and we've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about it and definitely haven't uh brought it up once and then done no work on it that certainly didn't happen um, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna do our big year in review episode it's gonna be great yes that's true uh our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com the leading mtg finance community sign up today mtgprice.com to manage your collection track your specs and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby travis what's on the agenda tonight James, this week we have a show in three parts. Segment one is our top movers. We'll talk about the couple of cards that have risen the most in price over the last week. Segment two is our, I'm sorry, yeah, segment one is our top movers. Segment two is our cards to watch, where we will talk about cards that James and I have our eye on because we think they may rise in price. Uh, And segment three is going to be our topic of the week. We've got some information about possible print run sizes. So we're going to discuss what that means and see if we can make some extrapolations from there. So we'll start out with segment one, our top movers. Our first card this week is Eidolon of Rhetoric from Journey into Nyx. Uh, We're looking at the foil copy. Started the week at around $6, up and around $12 right now. Uh, The market price on this is, is firmly $9. Um, so people have already been buying this up the chain. A lot of times when we talk about this card, the market price hasn't talk about cars in this segment. The market price hasn't necessarily moved yet, but in this case, it has started to move. Uh, so I would consider the demand to be reasonably real here, at least at $10. That's a pretty easy threshold for people. Uh, Eidolon of Rhetoric is mostly played at this point in modern sideboards. You'll see it in like death and taxes lists or various other, um, you know, court calling decks or what have you that can, that want a tool to fight storm and storm has gotten more popular uh, in the last weeks and months since brawl was uh, brawl storm has been showing up. So uh, definitely, definitely understand how we've gotten to this point. Um, you know, there's other, uh, there's another effect. There's a spell that has this effect, but uh, you know, it's, what is it like arcane sanctuary or something? I think it's only an enchantment. So I don't want to rhetoric might be the only, version of this in modern i'm a little rusty on that but the fact that you can also court of calling for him which you can't do with like the other enchantments that have the same effect is pretty important i uh ether sworn canonist that's what it is ether sworn canonist is the other one but that doesn't stop uh, everything rule of law is the three mana one you're looking that's for. what it was okay okay well in any yeah. case rule of law is also not uh not court of callingable yeah, and and doesn't have a a nice butt that can fend off the non-existent lightning bolts in modern. Right. Um, okay, so there you go. Idle on a rhetoric. All right. So next on our list this week, we have 
uh, a little card called uh, Deragaz's Caldera out of a plane shift. Uh, the foils in particular seem to have moved a little bit from $3 to $6.50. Exactly the kind of thing you're going to have trouble making any money on. Um, but if you've got one of these in your EDH deck or you fool around with it casually or it's just sitting in a binder, you can consider uh, trading out or you know, just protecting it so that at some point if this hits 10 bucks, you can uh, get out at near mint. Yeah, this is a, an odd card. I remember looking at this when I started playing EDH thinking, you know, the people might want to play this card, uh, but there's just so many other lands. I'm not sure exactly who's looking to get in with this one, but I don't know. Apparently somebody's making use of it. These things make you sacrifice a land when it comes into play and you get a try land, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, right. so I guess in like, is, hmm? so, so based on that, if uh, you're playing Gitrog or something. This probably makes the deck. Well, except the get raw. I don't think you can play this in get raw, right? Because it's uh, the wrong color. Or no, I guess you can still oh, right. lands. Lands you're allowed to do it with. So it does give you the option. But this is Grixis colors, and get raw is black green. So if you're going to play a layer, you wouldn't play the Grixis one. No, no, no. Deragaz is Jund colors. Oh, it is Jund. Oh, I was thinking it was a different one then. An odd choice in any case. Mm-hmm. I mean, it shows up in like. Prosh, Kresh, Scion of the Ur-Dragon, Karthus, like Yidris, the, here and there, Z, but it's, you know, like a a mid-tier. Basically, you have to be playing a deck where you want to recurse the lands. So if you've, if you've got a deck where you're fooling around with Remanat Excavator or something, um, or Get Rog Monster, and you're in Gen Colors, then this probably makes the cut. Um, but relatively modest demand profile, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, although it is ancient, uh, so there's probably not very many of them. Yeah, truth. And and highly unlikely to be reprinted since it's not part of the modern era. It's not, yeah, it's not, it shouldn't be part of anything. <laughs> uh, all right, our next card this week is Grizzly Bears from 7th edition. Somebody was feeling uh, nostalgic when they did their buyout this week. Uh, the 7th edition foils went from $8 to $20, uh, if you can believe that. Um I mean, they're sold out right now. The market's still at $4. There's no real demand for this other than being a 7th edition foil that's also sort of, I don't want to say iconic, but I mean, it is like, you know, grizzly bears is something people reference. Um, So I think this is mostly just somebody bought the last cheap foil 7th edition copy and it, you know, just kind of jumped the price that way. But I don't think there's anything really meaningful here. You'd never be able to sell these no matter what. Yeah, I think the you know the only meaningful comment is that seventh edition foils are something that if if they're just floating around in your collection, like you've got a box full of old common foils, and you were collecting during the the time of seventh and eighth edition, where these black bordered core set foils were being put out, you may be surprised if you go digging what you find in there, um, and you certainly don't want to be scuffing up your seventh foils <laughs> unnecessarily. So, definitely the kind of the, that those sets, seventh and eighth, the foils in particular, even for the commons, you might want to do a little binder diving and see what you got. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's worth at this point, any seventh edition foils are worth finding, even if they're not good. Because mm-hmm. I mean, buy list on this is probably some reasonable number. Um, and if you had, oh yeah, I bet. And if you had, you know, five or six of those foils from that era sitting around, you might be able to trade into some components of a deck you need. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you had, you know, 10 or 15 foil comments from 7th edition, that's not necessarily an insignificant amount of value. Yep. 
Um, all right. All right. What's next for our listeners, James? So we also had thwart foils from Arcadian masks in theory, moving from $4 to $12. Um, no idea why anybody wants this card or where they're intending to play it. Um, I think you just, again, look at this as a 15 year old foil that um, has just been draining out of the, the inventory online and no stores are really motivated to restock it or put it on a buy list ever. So that's exactly the kind of thing that's going to fade from existence and leave the collectors scratching their heads, trying to figure out where to get a copy. Yeah. It's uh yeah, I want another one of those cards. I mean, maybe you can get people to pay you for the copies that you bought, but I mean, you're going to sell like one every six months because just who, who actually needs this. Yeah, exactly. So moving right along, we've got Arena of the Ancients at a Legends uh, going from 16 to 50 in theory. There was a whole bunch of other reserve list cards with movement in the 10 to 50% range. Um this week looks like people are targeting and retargeting um, those first three years of magic. Um, this is not a card that anybody needs again, anytime uh, <laughs> soon, <laughs> but for, for the collectors, these sets are getting further and further out of reach. And there's really no reason to wait. If you ever intended on finishing uh, magic's first five or six sets, uh, no time like the present. Yeah, yeah. I mean, normally I would say, you know, you don't really need to care about any of this because it's just you're going to just be stuck with a bunch of cards that are supposedly worth a lot more than what you paid and not have really any buyers. But uh, if you are a collector, then in that case, you definitely would want to uh, to not hesitate. I mean, who doesn't want to play a three casting cost artifact that says all legends become tapped when arena comes into play? Legends do not untap as normal during the untap phase. So, like, basically, none of your planeswalkers ever untap. That's sweet. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny that you say that because I did uh, – when the first time that this popped up on the radar, which was, like, two months ago, I actually went out and grabbed the cheap Japanese copy for, like, three or four bucks just to have it because it's not uh, necessarily unplayable in uh, – what the heck was I going to put it in? I think uh, Timoret – Timnet, Timuret, and Sidhar, Sidhar, and Timnet. The idea it was a deck. It was a deck that like um, taps all your opponent. It was uh, it, the the guy with two power um, that's unblockable by creatures with greater power, and then you play like uh, imposing sovereign effects. So people's creatures come into play tapped, but then you play um, Meekstone is the other half of it, and then they don't untap. So everyone's bigger creatures come into play tapped and then they don't untap and it's really obnoxious and i was going to put arena of the ancients in there so there is corner cases where this is useful but yeah i mean it's still minor at best but i mean in the right game slapping this down could be massively disruptive <clears throat> but you'd have to get pretty lucky i mean everybody's commanders are legendary so yeah. you can you know legends that want to be swinging on a regular basis like xur the enchanter um this is kind of nice to lock him down in place uh, without ha- having to target him, because often the first thing he goes to find is a he- you know an enchantment that gives him hexproof. Um, so, I mean, I can see uses use cases coming up where this seems really good, but it would just like there'd be so many other hands where it's just stuck in your hand doing nothing, or is going to hurt you as much as it hurts the other guys. Yeah, I mean, unless your deck's built to sort of capitalize on that, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. And and building around just like the one card you're going to try to tinker up is not really where you want to be with no. EDH when you can just be playing like the generally powerful <laughs> assortment of excellent cards. Yeah. All right. 
so let's move on to segment two, our cards to watch. Have you got anything anything interesting for us this week, James? Yeah, we got a few things that we uh, dug, dug out of the uh, to watch list. Um, the first one that caught my attention was, you know, keeping on top of all of the um, expeditions and masterpieces and occasionally invocations, although I think the ship has sailed on those really doing anything too exciting. Um, sort of Fire and Ice masterpiece series from Kaladesh um, was a slow grower. It didn't wasn't one of the first five or even ten um, of the inventions to pop, but it has been drying up. It's uh, You can get them about 80 bucks right now. At some point, you could get them, I think earlier in the year, you could get them closer to 50 or 60. Um, and I have a feeling you're going to get a chance for these to hit 120 um, if you pick one up. I mean, it's in 8300 8, EDH decks. So if an EDH player buys one once a week, then, uh, you know, there's something like less than 20 copies, obviously available online from what I could see. So, you know, 20 weeks from now, if it sells once a week, you know, there's not going to be very many <laughs> left for sale. Uh, they have to keep getting pulled in via buy list. And the thing about these like EDH treasures is that they don't really recycle very often. Like it's not impossible, but EDH players tend to, you know, re- really lock um, assets out of the market once they acquire them because they sit in their decks forever. Um, especially flexible ones like this that can show up in a bunch of different decks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been pretty quiet on the masterpiece front in general for a while now, but I, I agree that there's still definitely some meat on the bone on some of these uh, that are now kind of, you know, Kaladesh was only, what, like a year ago, right? I think uh, last fall. So it hasn't really been all that long, honestly. We had that initial flurry and now it's kind of, maturing at its own pace so we will see you know these are still relatively new as far as kind of the world of magic collectibles goes um yeah and i like uh i like these types of things in the long term if you're willing to kind of be patient and i did the the obvious thing that we were doing earlier in the year which was to check what it was like on uh in the markets in europe to see if we could restock from there for cheap and then you know flip them out here but it you know that ship has sailed the 20 percent exchange rate euro to usd right now and they're priced at 80 euro so you're talking about 96 plus shipping to get your hands on them over there better off picking one up for less than 85 um, on home soil and then just you know checking back in in a year or two and and see how you did yeah yeah no kidding um okay so my first pick this week uh is aether flux reservoir from Kaladesh, I'm looking at the foils. I like them right now at about $4 or so, um, up to probably like 15 or so. Uh, I guess I should highlight this was apparently talked about back on show 89, so about 10 weeks ago. Uh, I think 10 weeks is long enough to be worth revisiting, uh, especially because I kind of arrived at it independently. I wasn't really thinking about... Um, I didn't just go back and dig through our stuff to <laughs> to uh, to look for old picks to redo. I kind of looked it up again and found it again, so it was, it was a fresh pick. But it's it's in nine thousand EDH decks at this point, which sort of blows me away that it's in that many. I never would have uh, guessed that it'd be in that many. Um, so that, you know, I maybe we talked about this ten weeks ago, and I expressed the same shock then, but I'm still shocked now. Uh, and this is a card from Kaladesh, so it's very new. So we have a card that's very new and has managed to go, you know, already get so popular um, without that much demand. So I like I like these in the longer term because this is going to maintain a lot of popularity uh, and should be a strong pick. 
you know, in about six months to a year ish or so, um, I would expect this to really move because if we burn through that so much supply already, it won't take long to really bottom out. I think this is a very strong pick to bring back up because the case has only gotten better since 10 weeks ago. And again, like it's it's not important for us to be original when we're trying to help you guys make or save money. It's important that you guys get tuned into the opportunities when they arise. If you bought it 10 weeks ago, then you sat on it for 10 weeks in a dead zone because it hasn't appreciated since then. But now the pick's even better because the inventory is lower and there's another thousand plus decks um, that it's been added to on EDH rec. So, I mean... Um, and it's showing up in a in with alongside a bunch of commanders that are going to continue to be popular. It's biggest in Aloro. It shows up in Yidris, Karlov, Brea, um, Tristani, and Campbell, um, Sidri. The list goes on. I mean, these are these are commanders nobody's going to be forgetting about that are going to continue to see play throughout the format. And you know, Reservoir as a foil rare from last year, there are relatively few of these sitting around and at four bucks i don't think you can go wrong at all um i think this is a good one to pick up you know 10 15 20 copies and just kick back and and give it a year yeah that's a, a fair point that i i for, forgot to mention when i was talking about initially is this is in decks that have been the type of decks been popular basically since the format's inception they keep putting cards to pay off that 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 sort of life gain strategy uh so i mean there's no reason to think that this is going to go down this is not a flash in the pan you know sort of like you might have thought nekusar was like there's real sustained appeal here i mean this is a format where you start with more life yeah so reservoir is just better right off the bat and it's also a format where there's usually enough breathing room as long as somebody doesn't combo off right away to you know accumulate a bunch of life and and that may not make you a target until they find out you're playing reservoir right <laughs> at which point at which point people are going to start saving relevant point removal to get rid of it uh, i'm um, sure you can probably combo there are plenty of games where people just have a an unassuming 200 life and then suddenly just drop this and nuke the entire table yeah exactly so yeah it's a great pick um, my next one is Campbell Console of Allocation, uh, the aforementioned commander that this is sometimes played alongside. Um, give it a confidence level of, say, a 7. This is the foil rare out of Aether Revolt. Um, I mentioned it uh, way back in the like s- show 64 or something like that. Um, and the buy price hasn't really moved. So it's another one of these situations like Etherflux where you know we picked it relatively e- early as something that was going to be good, but, um, you know, hasn't been a huge priority and if you've been sitting on them you haven't really gotten anywhere yet but really like these foil rares at two dollars just two dollars this is already in 4500 edh decks and it sees some modern play versus storm out of the sideboards of the decks that can uh, afford to include it yeah that's kind of funny you have this because i i was trying to decide what to put on my list this week and i i saw i saw Kambal. And I was like, oh, maybe I should think about that. I'm going to go play my match and uh, we'll see if I feel like putting it on when I come back. And then I got back and I did a double take. I'm like, I didn't think I wrote that down. And I realized James had put it on the list. So we both looked at the same card and thought about it this week, completely independent, uh, which is, is funny because it's not like there was a, a triggering factor here either. So I, I'm, I'm totally on board with how cheap, oddly cheap it is. There's only there's less than 600 decks where he's the commander. Um, I'm going to build one. I got, I want to. It feels that feels low to me. Um, given that any opponent casting a non-creature spell creates a four-point life swing, 
Yeah, I mean that's a lot of life, and yeah. he comes down so fast too. So I mean, super super strong card. Uh, a card, the kind of card that doesn't really shine in constructed, except against Storm, uh, nearly as much as it does in a game where you have a bunch of opponents trying to cast non creature spells all the time. Um, but yeah, the two dollar foils. Mm-hmm for for edh that are super unlikely to see your reprint the thing about both of these cards yours and mine um from the last two picks is that this is just last fall's block i mean there's no way they're getting reprinted in the next two years no no not at all it's way too new for that so when you talk about stuff like combal and aether flux reservoir and that type of thing these are so new uh you know even if they're on an aggressive reprint schedule you know you should expect at least three years um which means these are out of reach for a little while yeah exactly so next on your list uh well this one is also a a recall to something we talked about but i don't feel nearly as bad because apparently you and cliff talked about it when i was not here uh, so it's new to me. Fair. New to me. Fair, fair. Um, I also spotted Anguished on Making promos currently at $7, which seemed uh, very low. These are awesome looking. I picked up a couple of them a little while ago. This stash for myself. The promo is awesome looking. It's in a whopping 17,000 decks. Keep in mind, this is from the Shadows uh, block, so it's pretty new. Um, all things considered, it's this is not a, an old card, and it's hit seventeen thousand decks, and it's a black and white card too, which basically means every black and white card or every black and white EDH deck must be playing this card, like just all of them. Um, <clears throat> you know, we're definitely going to see Anguish on Making get reprinted multiple times, but it's never going to get reprinted as a promo. So, given how relatively low supply is the uh it's at a, at a at a low price point the promo is really cool it's extremely popular i know you guys just heard about this five weeks ago but i i, I want to reiterate how good i think this is well it's it's even better again since five weeks ago because there's only like 10 or 15 copies out there in that seven dollar price point and then it starts climbing between 10 and 15 um if you want one for your deck get one i i got a bunch of japanese foils at a really good price when i was doing a japanese order not too long ago and they really are nice like the the art on this looks great it's one of the better foils in the last couple of years um especially for edh players and you're gonna get a ton of play out of it so i i love edh finance from the perspective of get the cards that everybody's going to need throw them in your deck shift them around to your various decks over time and if for whatever reason down the road you want to get out you will have the most pleasant of surprises when you figure out that the deck you put in like fifteen hundred dollars on is worth like forty two hundred after a few years yeah yeah i mean that's basically been my strategy is i just pocket tons of foil edh cards and i just let them hang out there and i'm completely fine with that because if i ever decide that i want to get rid of them i'm i know that that binder is worth a lot more than what i paid for it yeah i've spent a not insignificant amount of time um pondering whether jason alt has followed his own advice over the years and has a, a lovely little treasure trove of edh goodies in his in his basement i'll have to follow up with him on that I'm sure he's got several. He's also got a kid, <laughs> which I'm sure uh, kind of encourages him to uh, be a little more aggressive with selling out, perhaps. <laughs> but, I'm not sure. It depends on how forgiving his wife is. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it means you just can't afford the cards. Sometimes it means that the kid ate the cards. Um, so, you know, either way, it can be tough. Yeah. Uh, all right. What's your last pick for the week here? So my final pick of the week is Grim Flare Foils, uh, finally a non-EDH card in our list. 
the Eldritch Moon Mythic Rare uh, foil is available in the like twenty to twenty-two dollar range, depending on where you're buying it from. There really aren't that many left lying around, and the card has been, you know forgotten by many players i think after it's it was quite good and standard for a while while it was legal um but it's a frequent include in green black mid-range decks uh both jund and abzan flavors in in modern and those decks aren't um you know uh, tier one right now they're probably tier 1.5 or tier two um but grim flare has earned its slot there and as a foil mythic um, it could easily be a forty or fifty dollar card before it ever sees a reprint. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking about this forever ago and thinking it was uh, pretty juicy then. Still a popular card, still sees play in modern. Modern in general's, I don't want to say cooled a little bit, but it's not quite the fervor that it was. But you know, when we're talking about modern, you've got a long time to kind of cool, you know hang out, and you don't have to rush in on your specs on that one. It's okay if they take a little while to get there. Um, and this definitely looks like it will be a part of that format for quite some time. Yeah. So we're going to skip through our metagame week in review this week. Not No major events we need to go through, but I did want to show off one deck to you um, on uh, that 5 0 to league on modern in, in modern on Magic Online. This is like the purest of um, Esper control decks. And it's, it's the kind of deck that through gaining a couple of new pieces over the last couple of years has really um, allowed the kind of like quintessential control player to to play, um, you know, the game that they were kind of locked out of for a long time in modern. This thing's running uh, three Snapcaster Mage, two Torrential Gear Hulk, three Celestial Colonnade, and that's pretty much your kill conditions. Okay. Classic control setup. And then the spells are just everything you would want in these colors. Fatal Push and Path to Exile, Serum Visions, Logic Knot, Negate, Think Twice, Esper Charm, Sphinx's Revelation, four Cryptic Command, and three Supreme Verdict, two Search for Azkanta. That's uh, a very grindy, controlly deck. I think, uh, what's his name? Nakamura is, would be proud. Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of deck that really rewards, like, technical play. Um, and that turn-by-turn decision-making uh, in terms of when to cash in your opportunities for resources and when to hang back and, and play defensively. Um, it's not for everybody, but uh, I, I like that Modern has pivoted into this position where suddenly several different flavors of control um, have brought some of the blue cards that were on the shelf for a long time. Cards like Cryptic Command, which we really weren't seeing much play, back to the forefront. We've got the blue Living Death deck putting, putting Ancestral Visions and Living Deaths on the battlefield. Uh, all sorts of cool stuff going on right now. Yeah, and we uh, we haven't really seen Grixis control in any meaningful capacity in modern. There's been a few people that have made an attempt, but nothing that's actually gotten anywhere. Uh, so so far, it sounds like the list doesn't have anything that we haven't seen before in modern, um, like at all. But it certainly opens up some doors to some cards popping up that uh, we might have missed so far. Um, you know, whether it's Night Veil, vale, Spectre, or or you know, just something in that vein. These sort of uh, grixis control cards that wouldn't have fit in jeskai or anything like that so i don't know who's, who knows what's out there ah there was actually one other deck i wanted to point out there's a mardu pyromancer deck that's floating around there was an article written about it on channel fireball today and it like finished first in an scg modern iq in durham hmm. uh and this thing is running two monastery swift spear such a weird number of swift spear like i would never have been my starting point um, four Young Pyromancer, which is really what the deck is built around, and four Bedlam Reveler. 
um, alongside Faithless Lootings, Fatal, Fatal Push, Forked Bolt, Inquisition of Kozilek, Lightning Bolt, a rare card modern lately, Thoughtseize, Thoughtseize, Collective Brutality, Dreadbore, Terminate, Coligan's Command, and Lingering Souls. So just like the full suite of efficient removal spells in uh, Mardu colors alongside a token generation engine and uh, a couple of alternate threat paths. Yeah, that's uh, that's funky. I know you know they try and sneak that in every now and then. It doesn't always. Uh, people have certainly tried that card before. Um, Young Pyromancer. Interesting that they're giving it another shot here. Yeah, I, I had a Jeskai Pyromancer Monastery Mentor brew that I was uh, foolishly taking to modern FNMs maybe like 12, 14 months ago. Um, when it was clearly not the deck I should have been playing in the format, but I might dig that back out and, and take it for another spin and see if it's any good now. Yeah, I mean, why not? Who knows at this point? I mean, really, if we've learned anything, it's that you can play anything in this format uh, and it's worth a shot. Yeah, I mean, doing something like Cataxian Pro, Probe into Opt or something with those two creatures in play, it's just the kind of good times I want to be having. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, are you all set with that or are we going somewhere else this week? I think we're good. Let's uh, move on along to our topic of the week. Um, we're going to talk about how uh, Rudy of Alpha Investments over on YouTube. I'm um, disappointed you even said his name out loud. I mean, it's, it's not a guy that I want to be directing you guys to on a regular basis. Uh, for every little nugget of truth in his dialogue, there is like, 30 minutes of hype and nonsense. And, you know, if, if you appreciate that for its entertainment value, you know, do as you will. Um, but if you're trying to build up a knowledge base on MGG finance, you can do better. Um, however, one interesting thing that has developed in the last week or so on his channel is that he has claims that he has access to print run numbers for relevant products that are still on the shelves um, for magic. Uh, it looks like these, uh, numbers are coming off receipt slips from pallets that he got from Cardamundi, which is one of the companies that prints for Wizards of the Coast. Um, it's unclear to me whether the numbers that he is throwing on the table are representative of total print runs or fractional print runs. I think you, it's safer to assume that they are um, they are complete print runs within some period of time, and that rather than hang our hat on these numbers. Um, as being definitive, we should use them as pieces to a puzzle. And as more information potentially emerges, um, this certainly may be worth paying attention to be on the basis that it helps us to predict the uh, how fast inventory will drain on cards that are related to the products in question. Okay. So we're looking at what, 34,000 sets, right, is the number he gave us? So I think for like Explorers of Ixalan, he said that there was 37,440 sets. Um, and the, rather, the somewhat amusing title of his video was print run of Explorers of Ixalan is 37,440 sets equals no one cares. Um, and I, I tend to imagine he selected this one to throw it there first because he was kind of trying to test the waters and see what, what kind of pushback he was going to get on it. Um, revealing the print run of something that, as he admitted, uh, it probably doesn't matter too much. Um, people responded to this number saying, well, even if you 
take the number of Walmarts in North America and multiply it by like four or five sets, um, you get a number that's probably bigger than this. So this number is, you know, has to be taken with a grain of salt. But it's certainly interesting to know that this number is somewhere in this realm of the middle tens of thousands and not single digit thousands or hundreds of thousands, right? Like this starts to narrow the economics and allows you to start building out models of calculation um, when you're trying to figure out, for instance, you know, what percentage of Wizards to overall revenue is a set like Explorers versus the core fall set like Ixalan. Um, the more information you have about those kind of things, the, the better the decisions you're going to be able to make. Um, are. And I have to imagine that if Rudy has this stuff on pallets and boxes that were shipped to his location, then other people do too and could come forward if they felt like it. Okay. Um, so I guess my question is, what is he referring to when he says a set? Are you aware of what he's, what that's supposed to be? So I'm assuming, I'm assuming that uh, he thinks that for explorers, that's units. So discrete units, not cases. Um and when he's talking about the commander product, uh, I'm not clear on whether it's cases or individuals. I would guess cases because of the way the SKUs would, like from the printer's perspective, my thinking is that each package set of four is considered a single unit. Each package set of four what? Commander products. So the, the other number that he revealed was 23,640 sets of the Commander 27 reprint. So that's not the total print run for Commander 2017. It's the reorder period that opened up about a month after it came out. Well, that makes sense. But I'm so but but on Rivals of Ixalan, then then what does that make a set? Is it it's not a case. It's, is it is it a it's not a box either, though. It's a shipping package. I, I have to look into it, a little, into it a little bit more deeply. I mean, I'm not going to like get too hung up on the details of these numbers until more information starts to coalesce around, you know, this topic. Um, as we said, Rudy's not your most reliable source and he doesn't necessarily make things crystal clear, um, you know, both to probably to protect himself and to, you know, drag out the viewership. So, you know, do your own research on this stuff. Pay attention. I'm sure Reddit threads will start to be compiled as time goes on and more information appears. But, you know, this is the kind of data that MTG Finance has been looking for for years. So, um, you know, it's by no means definitive, uh, but I'm very curious to see what else will pop up now that the silence has been broken. Yeah, it is interesting uh, for all of Wizards leaks over and over again. One thing they have been pretty good about keeping under wraps is their print runs. We've really gotten no data for that uh, ever, which is wild when you can think about all the card leaks we've seen. It's been like 20 years. I mean, there there were print run numbers for the first 10 years worth of Magic, I think, published that are still floating around out there. Um but yeah. they told us yeah, this, yeah. right? Like, it's not like we dug this yeah, up. They, I, don't, I don't know why they decided to print, to publish that at some point, but they did. Um, uh, it's weird information to put out there, especially since that was kind of like the heyday of like competition between Magic and other TCGs. But the let's just say that, you know, if the Commander 27 reprint was 24,000 units, um, you could extrapolate to say that maybe the total print runner was something like 100,000. And if the total print run was 100,000 and it, and if you want to give it credit, it's, to, you know, just to play with the numbers and give yourself some buffer in case you're wrong, maybe it's 200,000. I mean, that's getting pretty high, but let's, let's say it's 200,000. Then that means that any of the cards that were only in a single deck only have 200,000 copies. 
So then what you can start to apply attrition ratios against that, like what percentage of any given, uh, any amount of a card printed ever recycles back into the market and isn't just lost, destroyed, put into a closet, et cetera, never to return. And you can start to get a sense of, you know, how much a given vendor um, has in terms of total inventory control for the market. You can get, start to get a sense of how many copies might be floating around in there, out there that could get pulled back in on buy lists if inventory gets low. You can start to get a sense of you know how many years you need to have between reprints for you to make any money on something. Like this could be very useful information. Yeah, I mean, it would be great to have a, a feel for that because it would give you a a frame of like the mass quantity, which really helps when you start to conceptualize like. Okay, when we talk about a card showing up in 18,000 EDH decks, well, we know that we can extrapolate that. Um, obviously, there's more than 18,000 EDH decks out there. That's like the ones that are scraped. So if we can kind of get a feel for there might be roughly, you know, if EDH rec is reporting that there are 100,000 blue EDH decks that, you know, let's say it's maybe supposed to be 10 times that as the actual real number, which means there's a million. And if a card's in like 15% of those, that means we know that there's 150,000 of this card being used in EDH decks. And it's like, oh, damn, like that starts to give us an idea of how much of a available percentage of product out there is being used in that market, which then kind of also helps you give a frame of reference for like the how many cards how many of a card might have existed in Mercadian Masks versus Innistrad versus Kaladesh, you know, kind of different eras of print run. So it, it really does start to put everything into perspective. And I don't think it's a, a golden key that unlocks a font of knowledge, but it is a really interesting reference yeah. point. All right. So that's a, a wrap on a relatively quick one this week. Uh, where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, well, I am on Twitter, WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. How about yourself? You guys can find me as usual uh, at MTG Critic on Twitter as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Awesome. Um, okay. You got anything else for our listeners? <laughs> uh, Travis would also like to remind our listeners to check out the <laughs> MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. And that brings us to the end of episode 99. Uh, join us next week for episode 100. We're going to be doing a wrap-up, a year in review, kind of give a bigger picture of, of e Magic Finance. I was going to say EDH Finance, but really in 2017, that's what it is. Um, not exactly sure what night we're going to record that, but it will be next week, probably Thursday. Uh, James, thank you for joining me and I will see you next week. Yeah, we're going to go over the trend lines, you know, for the year, the, the biggest energy finance trends of 2017, as well as going over our hits and misses for the picks that we gave, doled out all year. Um, so that you guys can cheer, uh, yourselves and us on and also make fun of us for some of the dumber things we said. And, uh, uh thanks strong. Travis. We'll no, no, not allowing it, not allowing it. No one's allowed <laughs> to do that. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you guys next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm -hmm.